in the 11FS offices in London for episode 85 of Blockchain Insider, the weekly show dedicated to the news of where blockchain meets crypto and crypto meets institutions. Today we bring you JP Morgan do a coin, JP Morgan do a coin, and JP Morgan do a coin. All this and more on today's Blockchain Insider. I'm your host, Simon Taylor, and I'm joined by R3's David Nickel. R3's David Nickel, how are you? It's going well. It's been a fun week for digital assets, post-trade, and stablecoins. Uh, right? I mean, if there was ever a rock and roll sentence, that's it. Uh, <laughs> this is it. This is what we live for. <laughs> and the, the person laughing like a hyena that you can hear there <laughs> is the one and only Adam Davies, uh, head of delivery at 11FS. Uh, how are you doing, Adam? I'm very well, thank you. How are you doing? And doing well. Have you had a fun week? I have had a fun week, a busy week, intense week. It's been uh, it's been great. Lots of client things to deliver. So yes. head of delivery been staying busy. That's the one. All right, let's get on with the news. Um, this, I mean, there's there's one story this week. There were others, but that we we thought we wanted to do a special on this one because unless you live under a rock, you might have noticed that J.P. Morgan Chase uh, have. Uh, kind of come out and said we're doing a JP Morgan coin as such. Um, so the story we have here comes from Forbes.com, which actually has a, a pretty good breakdown. It quotes Jamie Dimon, the CEO of JP Morgan, saying, um, JPM coin is currently designed for business-to-business money movement flows. And because we're still in a testing phase, we don't have plans to make this available to individuals. That said, the cost savings and efficiency benefits would extend to the customers of our institutional clients. Um, There are three key applications. Number one was cross-border payments. Number two was securities transactions. And number three was transaction consolidation. I guess, of course, this is set against uh, Jamie Dimon have been an outspoken critic against Bitcoin in the past. There's been all kinds of reactions to this, and we'll get into some of the more fun ones a little bit later as we go on. But aside from those reactions, let's step through these one by one. Um, I'm going to start with you, David. Why a token? Why a coin? Why a blockchain? Surely Swift payments work. Um, there are no problems with uh, cross-border payments. We don't need no stinking tokens. <laughs> oh, yeah, you can explain that to uh, all, all the uh, corporates who lose payments, cross-border payments, or have to pay extra for the Swift tracking service that has now been rolled out. And, um, and I think it's important to say Global Payments Initiative, Swift GPI, is an additional extra that banks charge their customers for just to know where their payments have gone. Yeah, and, and if you think about Swift as a messaging service rather than a payment system, which is is really what it what it is, uh, a, a tracking service is really useful, and that's why GPI has seen such great uptake. Um, and I think it will continue to see a lot of uh, great adoption for not just payment messages, but other messages, anything that banks have to send to each other around the world. Um but why, why a, a coin? Why blockchain? Um, I, I mean, this is basically a stable coin backed by deposits on JPM books. So you, Whoa, step through that one, my friend. <laughs> uh, stable coin. Stable coin. It's, it's uh, a blockchain-based asset uh, that is meant to be stable, fungible, and liquid enough to be used to settle transactions on a blockchain platform. Like a dollar versus, say, a Bitcoin. That's exactly uh, which, right. Which is fungible, but it's not necessarily stable. Uh, a, well, a Bitcoin, one Bitcoin that is. does equal one Bitcoin, but you know, compared to other assets, it's considered volatile. That's exactly right. the The question is, what can you use as an asset to uh, to settle transactions of, of of other digital assets, whether that's a Bitcoin or a tokenized bond or a tokenized uh, any other type of security, or indeed even a tokenized bar of gold. So go back to that um, backed by deposits at J P Morgan. What does that mean? 
Yeah, so the simple implementation is that JP Morgan customers could come to their bank, deposit cash, and receive JP Morgan coins backed on a one-to-one basis by those deposits. The real intended implementation is for a JP Morgan customer using a blockchain platform to execute settlement in a blockchain-based transaction, which is what we just walked through. The representation of a settlement asset on Ledger uh, is a key ingredient for atomic settlement, and, and that is the delivery of an asset against the payment in two legs that can't succeed unless they both succeed. Well, okay. Um, Adam, why might somebody want this um, pseudo crazy, weird-sounding stuff? Yeah, I th- well, I think there's a couple of things. I think, first of all, why call this a coin? That, that doesn't speak to me like this is a cryptocurrency, which is sort of where my mind goes when you call coin. So, so that's a really important point, right? Because uh, the people are calling it a coin, but it's still a token. I would argue it's a token versus a balance, and this is this is kind of the key for me, right? Because historically, the way banks worked is they record a balance, right? And I record the balance, and the other bank records a balance, and they, we both record it twice, double-entry bookkeeping. Yep. Oh, it's going to get rock and roll today, folks. Yeah, yeah, We're yeah. talking accounting <laughs> right now. Uh, so uh, double-entry bookkeeping, hard, because I, uh, I tell you, I tell your bank that, hey, my customer intends to pay you, and and you go, okay, great. Um, then I go, great, I have moved one of the accounts. And then you go, great, I've moved one of the accounts too. And then I go, I've moved the other one. And you go, I've moved the other one, if there are no issues. So we've got four accounts to deal with just to get started. That's a lot of reconciliation. Yeah. Which which is hard enough. Then you think, well, actually, there might be a whole bunch of other actors in that. It's, it's very rarely as simple as just those two. So having this thing where, like, if I give you my phone, you now have my phone and I no longer do. Um, there's no such thing as that in the digital world. If I give you, if I send you an MP3, you now have a copy of that MP3, and I have a copy of the MP3. Yeah, I, and, and when you talk about Swift being messaging, it's like email. So this yes. idea of it being like a token yeah. is really valuable. But the term cryptocurrency, to your point, yeah. is so unbelievably loaded. It, it's a um, so when I when I heard, if you think about the underlying structure that they've put in place, this is a. The term coin indicates marketing ploy to get the sort of reaction that they did on social media and elsewhere over the last week. Um, that's me being relatively cynical, but I think even if you went into JP Morgan, they'd probably agree the same thing. Yeah. If I go back in my time, you know, three, four years ago, when uh, banks were starting to look at uh, their payment systems and understanding which part of those payment systems you could potentially replace using a centralized ledger, um, everyone was kind of saying their bank plus coin was going to be the name and everyone was having a good giggle about it. You mm-hmm. know, oh, wouldn't that be ironic? And, you know, this is literally doing that. Um, it's just because it's JP Morgan and the size that they are, they can probably get away with it. Um, the reason why this is really interesting isn't necessarily that it's a coin as so much. Um, is more that um, it's kind of, if you think about the age-old process of how you send money internally... So you think about something that is called an honest transaction at a bank, which so is basically- this is JP Morgan customer to a JP Morgan customer. It, so th- what we would do before JP Morgan it, coin is an honest transaction. It, exactly. And it's it's not even that. It, it could even be, and probably the most of their book is JP Morgan to JP Morgan. Yeah. So you're actually just sending, JP Morgan sending themselves money um, across the world. So not necessarily in their jurisdiction, but you know into different geographies, Yeah, they've got a bunch of customers in one part. They've got a bunch of customers in another, and they- they net up those transactions exactly. and move money between themselves. And that's a key business area for any bank, but especially JP Morgan because of their network, because of the, the number of entities that they have in different uh, markets. They're able to avoid a lot of the problems in correspondent banking by simply putting it all on them, as you say. Exactly. So um, the thing is, I think a lot of this cost that they're doing at the moment is via SWIFT. 
So a lot, basically at the moment, they're paying an enormous, well, I say enormous amount of money. I'm putting that in inverted commas because they move about $6 trillion daily. So the actual volume that JP Morgan are running in this is just absolutely insane. Um, But they're still paying a middleman to do this. Mm. Um, And I think that's the key thing here, which is how do you eliminate that middleman? Well, I guess it's not necessarily the middleman because as as David said, uh, the SWIFT message is essentially sending an email, but it's the same as going outside your company to come back in. And I think that's the point. As soon as you go outside to come back in, as soon as you hit the external network to come back in you get all of the issues you would as if you were paying somebody else you've got all of the controls you're subject to all of the compliance you get all of those headaches as if i were not paying myself an honest transaction is as hard and in some cases harder than not honest transactions uh, because you're getting all of that headache and you're dealing with different jurisdictional kind of uh, processes and yeah you, exactly you've got to replicate the kind of service you would get via a you know let's say a visa or a swift or whoever depending if it's going cross-border or domestic and you've got to replicate all the controls that they would offer you know basically for that fee um so i think this is um i think from their perspective it's uh, it's kind of like a, a GPI, which is sort of a tax transparency. It's definitely got that kind of play. It's kind of a let's see how far they can grow, uh, but keep it probably maybe kind of small at the beginning. Let's sort of test the yeah. waters, test I the like market. I like that approach. Yeah. Right, start I'm small. assuming this because I haven't, they haven't put out anything in terms of the roadmap that I've seen. Anyway, you guys might be able to, might have seen something different, but I haven't seen a, you know, we're going to throw this far and wide. Um I would have thought they're going to start relatively small on this, which is why they're being a little bit conservative. You know, we're still in testing phase, et cetera, et cetera. But by the way, we could, you know, this could be absolutely enormous, you know, which has got everyone talking and everyone going. So So cross-border payments, I guess, um, if you're... if you're Coca-Cola, Pepsi, whoever you are, and you've got offices in multiple countries, like moving money between your regional kind of accounts is as painful. Well, not as painful, um, but it's uh, it's as costly in theory, yeah. and it's um, and it has as much manual process as dealing potentially with two you know, top-end banks would. Uh, uh, because, like, let's be fair, J.P. Morgan are known for being one of the more expensive players in the market, but also one of the highest quality. Right when it comes to international payments. They are known as the de facto standard. They could charge you more because the service is higher. Um, This really is interesting because they're almost disrupting themselves from a cost standpoint in terms of what they charge out and really driving towards that service angle, which which I thought was an interesting strategy. But I can see why a corporate would want that because if if I'm just trying to move money between headquarters and a a branch, why should that be so hard? You're JP Morgan. You guys figure that out. And, And this is moving that way. Well, and to be fair, they haven't released anything about their uh, cost structure of the business case. Um, but what they did say was that they tested a uh, transaction between uh, a corporate and JP Morgan. So there are a lot of banks doing this internally to, to yeah. improve their own book transfer system, which is, which is frankly today outside of, uh, of the blockchain world one of J.P. Morgan's uh, key value propositions. So it's, I, I think it's really telling, and, and I have to say props to, uh, to Ollie and the whole team at J.P. Morgan for doing this with, with a corporate account as well as the bank. Yeah, because mm-hmm. I, I think we saw HSBC with a press release of having yeah. done something similar recently. Yeah. Um, so there are other banks doing this yeah. stuff, but to have done it with a corporate is the new bit here. Yeah, with, with a real client, it shows that they're really touching the, uh, the, the, the customers who care there, um, or the customers who matter, rather. Um, I think the other point to the stepwise function in which this will be laid out um, and, and in which it will evolve is uh, compliance and the use case. So, mm-hmm. so currently it's starting small, starting quite closed, starting inside a network of 
participants who've been KYC'd. I think this is a really important point. What it's doing today, I could possibly replicate with other technologies, but what it could do tomorrow is where where things start to get interesting. Yeah, and there they they said in the uh, release notes that they do intend to um, to deploy this to other uh, blockchain platforms, other networks, other systems where this makes sense. And I think that's, that's again, uh, huge props to them. And it's something that everyone who is working with a settlement asset should do or a settlement coin should do, which is deploy the, the settlement asset where there are transactions that need to be settled, where there's a market of transacting parties who can benefit from that atomic settlement JP that we talked about. have by default um, huge scale in that transactional banking business. Yeah. Um, benefiting from atomic settlement. Talk to me about benefiting from atomic settlement versus um, not being able to have atomic settlement. Yeah. So today, when you settle a, a, a transaction, a transfer of an asset from one party to another, uh, you create an obligation to settle. Um, and, and usually that's done. It's kind of like a scout's promise. Yeah, exactly. It's it's a contract. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that was... Um, <laughs> dip, dip. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, it creates the need to settle, an obligation to settle. Um, that obligation can be extinguished any way. It could be extinguished with an ongoing debt that we just manage, like a like a credit card account, um, or it could be settled um, in in real time with a with a delivery of of uh, the asset versus the payment all in one single transaction. The benefit of an atomic transaction is that you can reduce the risk, cost, and time mm-hmm. in that settlement process, in that post trade process, which today takes perhaps two days, or maybe you settle at the end of the day, but it's very, um, but it's very expensive. If you try to settle intraday, that is during the the um, normal course of business between nine and five, um, you often don't know when the balance is actually going to hit your account. So the ability to to ensure that when you settle this transaction, it is completely settled. It doesn't work for every business case, but it, it does reduce a lot of the risk, cost, and time so in the, the system. So the big term out here is settlement finality. And if you talk to the folks at CLS, like settlement finality is this whole can of worms about, I don't know when a thing's really finished. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. like um, there's there's all of these terms like completed, um, delivered, settled, all that sounds really, really final, um, but settlement <laughs> finality is this this subject that international banks and regulators have argued about for many years because we all keep a copy of what's happening and we all have to come to agreement about what has happened. Yeah. And the only way we can do it is by glorified emails, um, yeah. which is, yeah. sorry, Swift, but that's what a message is. And right? I was, was going to say, like the, the Swift version of this was basically a notification by the end bank back to the first bank if they could find them, basically, or messages just going all the way back, mm-hmm. just basically saying that the transaction had happened. And you can imagine like the um, the workflow on that and just how difficult, well, not how difficult because they've automated it obviously to put to a point, but just how clumsy, I guess, that process is and how prone that process is to errors. And that's just for transparency. I know GPR has been looking at that. Um, but it's interesting in terms of, you know, if you look at these three use cases and you think about um, how the use cases, uh, I suppose, have spoken to the original incarnation of centralized ledgers and, um, and how they could be the most um, the most usable, the most workable, that they speak to the three really that everyone was coming up with years ago. So cross-border payments, which was basically the one that everyone was going after. Securities transactions, you know, how can we actually get issuance um, up and right? You know, that is, again, everyone was looking at that like three, four years ago. And then obviously you know, from a treasury function perspective, which is where the real money moves, you know, hitting that, will not have any visibility to the end customer but boy that is like the golden source for for banks that's where they want to that's where they want to focus yeah and that that's um one of the keys to the settlement finality 
uh, bit that you brought up, Simon. Um, there's been tons of work uh, done by the industry as a whole to define what assets count as uh, for final settlement. Uh, the principles for financial market infrastructure lay this out um, pr pretty well. And this is where I, I think it's interesting that they've called it, they've called uh, the JP Morgan coin a, a coin. Um, because the uh, the PFMIs state that you should be settling in central bank money when you can, um, so it kind of shows that this is the, the naming of it as as a coin and, and not as um, as reserves or as mm. deposits or something mm. that implies a bit more. I think shows that um, there's a, there's a lot of room for growth. Ah, so you didn't think it was a marketing play? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I th and I think that that atomic settlement piece becomes really really interesting as well when you consider having risk and time was something that created an ability to charge for managing the risk yeah. and time. Yes. Uh, and I think the assumption that, um, and I don't wish to put words in their mouth because this is my speculation, but I think the assumption in any form of transaction is ultimately that fees are on, on the road to zero. So the value you add increasingly comes from data about the transaction. And I mean, what does that enable me to do in terms of um, transaction consolidation, uh, in terms of being able to look forward? Like if I'm a corporate treasurer, Looking back is nice, but looking at what's coming ahead is better. Um, you know, this currency pairing is about to become, uh, you know, has this likelihood of becoming more volatile. Uh, here, click here to just quickly move between your subsidiaries. Yeah. I think when you get from workflow to um, the atomic settlement yeah. and having that being able to move on more than once, like it's nice to be able to do a transaction. It's really nice to have workflow that can do four, five, 10, 15, 20, and can actually be. Uh, managing transactions as part of a more comprehensive contract that's yeah. when things get exciting yeah it's, it's not just that when when uh it's not just that you see what i see and i see what you see it's that you know that you know that when we both agree to settle a transaction in the future we know that we'll be credited with the balance in as soon as immediately after that transaction rather than wondering when the uh the counterparty's treasurer will get around to submitting the payment i really like this point that lee brain at barclays raises as well which is a, in a perfect world you'd create the one central bank to rule them all mm. um you know it would whether it's jp morgan the us fed or whatever and it would run the service um but actually what you would have is something that's a too big to fail and b becomes politically infeasible because there's no way you put it so uh in aggregate centralization becomes inefficient because what have I done? I've created another counterparty on top of the commercial banks, and I don't want to get rid of commercial banks because of their ability to create money supply, their ability to create credit, because we saw what happens when credit is limited in the yeah. economy, boom, the economy crashes. So there's there's a need for commercial banks. There's a need for not one bank to rule them all. So centralization can't work um, in the traditional sense. Um, and so therefore, even a centralized service operator becomes highly regulated. So I need something that is less centralized uh, logically but i need to enforce a consistent design pattern across all of them and this is where dlt comes in really handy because if i'm going to have a contract in which there's one payment every day based on the movement of an index so the london interbank rate of uh, G gbp usd moves therefore i've got a, a swap or something and therefore i'm uh, moving things backwards and forwards, you know, based on the, I've got margin calls backwards and forwards. Mm -hmm. To have a contract that can do that every day and manage the settlement for me between accounts as and when I need saves me all kinds of middle and back office stuff. But what else does it give me in terms of the data? That's yeah. where I get excited. Yeah, I think that the data is interesting, but it, you just talked about collateral calls or margin calls. Um, and and I, I think it's important that 
commercial banks are still able to operate that business case that you talked about, the ability to create money. And, and there was a lot of uh, noise, a lot of reaction asking about whether this JPM coin is fully backed and, and what it's backed by. Um, and I think that people forget that uh, fractional reserve banking uh, actually does does play a role. Um, and as long as you can confirm that when you have the balance or, or when you think you have the balance, you actually do have the balance. And when you post a collateral call, it's actually gone all the way through. Uh, that, that's the real benefit. But you know, are we going to see more banks do this, do you think? Are we going to see JPM coin competitors from other banks? And uh, do the central banks ever play a role? Yeah, so I, I think we'll definitely see additional banks um, doing this. I, I think the a lot of banks have been um, looking at this for a while. And I mentioned the internal bank use case. Uh, and we've seen a lot of, of banks try this out for internal book transfers, which has already produced uh, good returns for them internally. Um, I think that other banks will uh, take this design and see how it's applied. Um, and I think what we'll see are groups of banks, especially in the US rather than the EU, who uh, come together and pool collateral accounts, balance collateral accounts to get against each other um, and, and back uh, settlement assets or, or coins uh, with collateral accounts that are not just from one single bank. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this is just a sensible and, and really exciting evolution of banks providing settlement finality for, for business transactions. It's really interesting. I think when we look back on blockchain and DLT in 20 years, people point to this moment. Could, possibly, probably. I mean, again, I think I'm still um, I'm still interested in terms of the roadmap and the rollout. So I think there's a um, there's a long way to go. There's a long way to go. Um, you know, a lot of I've read a lot of the reaction last week was around. Oh, Swift should be really worried. Ripple should be really worried. You know, this is coming for their lunch, and people were taking sort of different perspectives on whether you're attacking sort of Swift or Ripple with this. Um, I think there's a you know a realism that you know how much is this actually going to move the needle uh, based on the amount of a clients involved and b how mm-hmm. much how much of the internal use case JP is planning to solve with this. I think that for me because. Because that, for me, is probably the killer use case here for them at this moment in time, if they haven't thought about that internally at the moment. Um, and that, I think, would be that would be super interesting to understand. The other thing is to scale to the level that what JP Morgan does at the moment from an international transaction perspective, et cetera, you know, this thing has got to be super powerful um, and it's got to have scalability built in, like to a fine, you know, infinite um, level. So how much does it cost to do that? Um, where's that energy coming from? You know, I, you're saying energy questions. a couple of times. I think that's a red herring. Um, I think that energy only is an issue if you're talking about a public permissionless proof of work based blockchain, which Quorum isn't. I think it, we haven't said that yet, but this is based on Quorum um, to the best of my knowledge. Um, and Quorum, of course, uh, came out of uh, a, a team inside of JP Morgan um, that have then open sourced their code base, which also uses uh, a lot of, uh, you know, it's inspired a lot by the work of the Zcash um, and uses zero knowledge proofs in there. And they've basically created, uh, you know, you can go to the Git repos, you can go to the Quorum website. It works really quite differently to public Ethereum. Uh, but their goal is it's linked back to public Ethereum at some point in the future. So they have a roadmap in their head for how, you know, you could end up with um, something that speaks to something that's more broad and more open, but you start with intranets, um, which, which is kind of interesting. Mm. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's got a raft-based consensus uh, today, which is, is really most similar to uh, proof of authority. Um, so uh, there was a lot of uh, debate about, you know, is this crypto um, and, and is JP Morgan really, you know, getting on the side of, of Bitcoin and, and there, you know, finger in the eye to, uh, to Jamie Dimon. But that's really not the case at all, of course, for all of the um, 
all of the POCs, all of the all of the prototypes that are that they're building over there um, on the quorum side, um, for the ones that are you know pointed at enterprises, the ones that are uh, meant to handle institutional grade transactions, there's generally a designated party who orders transactions and ensures there's no double spending. Um, so I, I think it's quite sensible, and I, I think that it will expand to other blockchain platforms as well. It's really about how um, JP Morgan and, and its partners will be able to uh, expand the circle of, of KYC trust and um, make sure that there's no AML gap or any, any loophole there that could be exploited. Uh, we're going to have to keep watching this. Um, we'll get to some people's reactions, but I just got to do the quick ad read and remind everybody that, of course, this episode is brought to you by the wonderful people at R3. Uh, Todd McDonald, it's not just for financial services, neither is blockchain. Um, tons of industries can reap major benefits across insurance, healthcare, pharma, automotive, you name it. Uh, you can discover the potential for blockchain for your business with R3's Corda platform. And, of course, you can find out more at r3.com. Alrighty, let's get to some reactions. Um, first one comes from uh, the wonderful Jameson Lopp, who uh, is worth following on Twitter at L-O-P-P, if you don't already. Uh, his tweet reads, Banker stablecoins are a step forward, just as banker intranets were in the 1990s. Adoption of this technology will make the transition smoother when they are forced to capitulate and adopt the internet of money. Um, interesting use of the word <laughs> capitulate there. Um, but I, I think that broader intranet internet point is one that's sort of stuck around as an idea for a little while. Um, do you, does anybody in this room fundamentally disagree with the intranet internet analogy? Well, I, I don't disagree with the analogy. It's it's a good one to to talk about how um, how how innovation spreads. But I would also add that um, bankers don't use the open internet for anything even now. Yeah, they um, use private wires, right? Exactly right. So I I think that the uh, the the metaphor is well taken, but it's um I don't think this is a, a sign that um, anyone's capitulating. I, I think that's the key point here, isn't it? That um, that I guess there is still this undercurrent of uh, religion and religious war about what money could be and should be to society and a lot of the early adopters of crypto um, that, that might not always be pragmatic. Yeah, and I think this can be really exciting without um, calling it uh, a crypto capitulation or, or um, JP Morgan adopting anything in, in crypto. I think we, we just talked about a lot of the benefits that this, um, this, this JP Morgan coin provides. Um, even though it essentially uses a, a proof of authority or a designated, you know, third party to order transactions. So it's, um, it's, uh, I don't think I quite buy the entire metaphor. Great first sentence. Second sentence is, uh, yeah, slightly forceful. I mean, for, for me, I think, um, you know, adopt the internet of money. In my mind, that goes to sort of cashless society. What happens when um, stable coins are no longer pegged back to, a you know be it a gold be it dollar etc i think he's probably missing the um the bit in the middle which is that would fundamentally destroy stable stable coins themselves so then what actually happens well he's assuming i guess that you would never have a peg stable coin and you have a de facto gold standard as you were saying but i guess um there's this interesting question so the really interesting one that i keep bringing up as a seminal work is um, Bank of England Working Paper 605. Yeah, this is the most rock and roll show you've ever heard. Um, <laughs> Bank of, in, in 
2016, the Bank of England's Economist put out a view as to why as um, what why are the limits to how far you would go in terms of uh, kind of uh, access to central bank reserves versus uh, the gold standard versus uh, and they discounted the gold standard for, for because reasons that they walk you through um, and they discounted you know direct consumer access to central bank reserves because um, narrow money is something that has been looked at and considered in the past and of course the role of money supply uh, of as, as we discussed earlier. But I think it's interesting that there's um, some similarities with um, Brad Garlinghouse, of course, the CEO of Ripple. His comments are, introducing a closed network today is like launching AOL after Netscape's IPO. Um, two years later, and bank coins still aren't the answer. Uh, it's the answer for JP Morgan right now to hit a use case where potentially they could save a lot of money and potentially then pass that money on to their clients who can then hopefully potentially pass those savings on to their customers. And the, so, the interesting thing about Ripple is you can you can look at their kind of uh, explorer and see the volume going through it on their public network. Um, I would argue that whilst there have been some fairly sizable transactions that have been put through that network, uh, JP Morgan could sneeze and do more in, in, in half an hour. Um, so there's a, the, the real race is, um, I'd say they're at the same starting blocks, that they've, they've kind of got their opening position, but neither of them has the real traction. I just, I, I don't, I, and again, you know, going to the little level of detail that that disproves this but for me they don't seem like the same solution you know they are hitting a completely different use case um jamie diamond you know jp morgan have already come out and said this is you know an internal test it's something which they'll perfect internally and i think the you know if they were ever to permission this to you know the general public if it was ever to go open it would look completely different um I, I just I don't think you're lining up apples and apples here. I think oh, they're a completely different thing. So this links to uh, Fred of the show Maya Zahavi's point, right? She says most people are missing the point of JPM coin. It's built on quorum, meaning eventually there will be more participants on this chain, but that JP Morgan will issue zero knowledge proofs of the balance for each coin. Remember, digital asset receipts integrated into each coin, uh, at least in, in her theory. So this is kind of an interesting point that there's almost like um, Ripple, I think, have got that sort of, um, let's start from the internet and work towards money. And I think JP Morgan have started at money and work towards the internet. And so they're different starting points. And uh, you know, my tongue-in-cheek comments about Brad aside, I, I think both of those approaches are extremely valid uh, and worthwhile. It's unclear which of those will win, but let's not dismiss out of hand the merits of the JP Morgan approach, right? I think there are values too. It. And the the inclusion of zero knowledge proofs, I think, is a really really important point. Yeah, and, and to to the um, to the first tweet, uh, I, I don't think that any of Brad's tweets keep the J.P. Morgan executives up at night. <laughs> but and I also don't think that J.P. Morgan Coin was you know, hoping to win over uh, the the online community of, of Ripple users or or um, cheerleaders. Um, and I think I, I really like your your analogy that uh, one is working from the internet, the other is working from money. And and I think that people are forgetting that the beginning uh, point of this currently experiment, but will be in production, um, is that you start with a JP Morgan account. You start with uh, being a known entity um, to the bank that's providing you purchasing power. I think that's a really powerful concept. Being able to work on a on an open technology platform but with strong identity is something that's really resonating in the, the market. The classic Y combinator is, can the innovator get scale before the incumbent gets innovation? I think the interesting one here is, can the innovator get scale 
because scale in banking is the there's there's all of the KYC AML stuff that sits around scale. There's all of the laws and the rules and the nations and the governments. And the only real alternative you see is the the answer that doesn't involve governments, which is the the Bitcoin answer and the stateless currency. Which you can sort of say, in theory, I could see why that might be valid but there's already ways to curtail that and and manage it from a state level i think this the the sort of the internet first messaging led uh methodology does i think the narratives around it miss that point um and and it's been sort of built from a technology purist standpoint rather than from a from a market uh reality standpoint that's that's my perception and view um i'm sure there are ripple fans screaming uh, internally right now so please do email me um simon 11fs.com and we uh, will uh, get some of the best shows uh, best comments read oh, out on the show r.i.p your inbox yeah <laughs> hey no we lost um the xrp army a long time ago um <laughs> but if you're still out there thank you for listening and i hope you appreciate some uh, attempts at intellectual honesty um already um moving away from the tweets uh, there's a really interesting article on getreview.co, um, and it's the top 10 narratives for not just pushing uh, JPMC's, uh, not just pushing my case, JPMC, um, as the special edition. Um, it raises the following narratives. Um, so let's do a quick fire round. Is this a cryptocurrency? No. No. Uh, will money laundering become an issue? Uh, I don't think so in this case. No, it's a network of parties that are KYC'd and, and known. RIP Ripple? No, not yet. Mm. <laughs> not not because of this. Uh, floodgates open, who will follow? Yeah, I think definitely. Everyone and their mother. Bitcoin killer? Uh, different use case, store value versus payment and settlement. Yeah, my apples and apples, apples and pears analogy holds true. We just started talking about fruit all of a sudden. I'm bringing it down <laughs> to the common man. Hungry. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's hungry time. But so... Uh, what's your overarching narrative on this? Is what, you know, like if you had to take away one thing that I can use at my desk tomorrow, what's that thing? Or later today, if I'm commuting into the office? Well, I hope that uh, your desk is a security settlement desk. Uh-huh. Um, no, the takeaway is that that there are very interesting uh, post trade um, transactions, post trade flows that you can uh, structure with a with a blockchain um, based asset, a blockchain based uh-huh. settlement asset. I think the possibilities are are really interesting, and I think we'll see this work its way into different uh, different asset life cycles um, and, and different asset transaction um, life cycles. And I I, I think that um, you, you can do this on on Quorum, you can do this elsewhere, but I think the the concept of a stable coin, the 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 usefulness of a stable coin, is uh, is actually going to be proved. And and I think the more of these examples that you see, um, the the sooner we'll we'll see this being used in in proof of concepts and and uh, use cases that that are really exciting. Yeah, I think for me, it's think about what, how you would push a product out from a an MLP perspective, minimum lovable product. So if if you're if you're looking at that and you think about how they've done it, they've done a stable coin, they've done a closed network. Um, I'm assuming, as I say, Hopper back to the roadmap, but I'm assuming they're starting small. Um, they're starting with uh, you know clients who have already, as we've just mentioned, been KYC'd and known to the bank, etc. It's start, but it's hitting a use case, and the use case here is king. 
Um, a lot of people, I think, when this technology was first coming up and everyone was talking about it, even people who weren't necessarily affiliated with blockchain working in those divisions in banks were like, what could this do? What can this do? It could solve international payments. That's a big, big use case to solve. Um, and I think what I quite like about this is that they've you know, announced three use cases, which everything, everybody knows is viable um, if you could make the technology work. And um, they've hit the MLP version of those three, which I quite like. Colin Platt likes to talk about direct custody as well, the ability for uh, you to not have to rely potentially on custodians and or um, counterparties. Um, you know who the custodian of the asset is at any point. Like I know what I see is the same as what you see and we know who holds the asset, the settlement finality. So there's probably something interesting there as well. Yeah, and I think that uh, another great thing that they did is they brought together internal customers and external customers um, and they've, they've really made the business case work for the uh, people in the transaction who actually matter. It's, it's a really powerful way to, to do this, really powerful way to, to move through innovation with something small, addressable, um, and, and show the power of something like direct custody and knowing where your assets are at all points in time. I think there's something interesting as well that uh, increasingly I've been having conversations in the last one or two months where um, some of the um, technology skeptics who've gone solution looking for a problem yeah. don't yeah. really get why I wouldn't yeah. use um, traditional tech for this have started to go, oh, I get it now. And the reality is you can still do everything with centralized tech. You could still do this all different ways. Um, but the design patterns that start to get enforced get really, really interesting when you start thinking this way through. And, and you consider that there are banks that have announced central bank-backed digital currency initiatives. Then things start to get even more interesting, um, which, which made me think about the um, – we, we've got a tweet coming up. But, of course, uh, your, your good colleague, um, Anthony Lewis, um, did put a uh, – on bits on block – dot net a gentle gentle introduction to money um which if if there's a lot of terms like a, atomic supplement flying around at you and all or you know deposits versus cash versus blah 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 if all of those terms like broad money and narrow money clearing banks balance sheets digital currency it those words come at you thick and fast uh, a gentle introduction to money is is a great place to to go uh, just kind of take a first principles look at this discussion uh we like to nerd out a little bit more here yeah, uh, don't tell Anthony, but everything I know about broad and narrow money, I know from bitsonblocks.net. It is, it is a gentle introduction, and he's got a lot of other good content on there as well. Shout out to Anthony. Um, stories we didn't have time to cover. Don't blame me. It's all JP Morgan's fault. Uh, Jamie Diamond, it's on you. And Ollie Harris, um, you, know, you, you owe all of our listeners a beer. Um, <laughs> just kidding. Uh, Coindesk.com. Uh, Craig Wright uh, claims to be Satoshi in a critical response to the CFTC about Ethereum. Oh. <laughs> the block.crypto, um, New York Stock Exchange uh, to sue the SEC over a pilot that would shake up US stock market. Mm, interesting. The block.crypto, Binance delists five projects, including Salt Lending, uh, which was a big name in the crypto space for quite some time. That's, um, that's, that's a big story, but, you know, JP Morgan meant we couldn't cover it. So, you know, blame JP Morgan. Um, everything is awesome. All right. Uh, it's time for Twitter of the Week. It's the Tweet of the Week. Tweet of the Week. So we've discussed a ton of great tweets, but um, we really love including our Tweet of the Week jingle uh, because it has Petrit sounding awesome and Michael making him sound really, really interesting and weird. Um, so guess what? Um, we saved our favorite tweet for last. And this comes from uh, Ari Paul, um, Ari David Paul on Twitter, who's worth following because um, his thoughts are always interesting whether I agree with them or not. Um, and... 
this one definitely has got me thinking. Uh, so he, he says that crypto fiat, i.e. government-controlled, permissioned cryptocurrencies, um, I guess in this case, uh, you, you might want to call them digital currencies, you might want to call them tokens. Don't worry about the fact that he calls them cryptocurrencies, but government-controlled, permissioned tokens that represent real-world money will be the biggest battleground globally for human rights in the next decade. China is leading the way. Many other countries, including some big Western democracies, will follow. Uh, responding to uh, Neeraj Agarwal saying, when cash is gone, where will you turn to transact with a basic level of privacy? Uh, I think this is an interesting risk to call out, right? If you are sitting in government or a bank, um, there's a real temptation to have a crypto asset where I can see everybody's transactions all of the time. I can see what's happening in the money system. Like I could solve a load of crimes. I could prevent a load of criminality. I could potentially improve my policy. I could um, lift people out of poverty if I understand where money's going better. I Like the data about how money moves could be hugely valuable, but also um, I could completely invalidate people's privacy because I might know how everybody's spending. So the real question becomes, so how is that going to be implemented? The question becomes about the how, because um, not all uh, crypto assets are created equal. But doesn't this data, or I mean, a lot of this data already exists, you just can't access it. Well, see, so, yeah, that's uh, interesting. So, yeah. And so, in you know, he's taking a long view on this. Um, but I mean, if you go out, you know, however many years it takes to get to this kind of um, this kind of state, you know, what's to say that the same, you know, same controls. Um, same blockers would exist then as they do now, just in a completely different form with a different, completely different technology. I'm, I'm interested to know, uh, and you sort of touched on there, Simon, his link between, um, yeah, I guess, no cash all the way and cryptocurrencies all the way through to human rights. I'm struggling in my mind to make well, so, that link. So the interesting thing about cash is it's used predominantly by the financially excluded. Um, you know, the the people who use it, it it's, a, it's a real financial inclusion uh kind of uh, savior for and a lot of people. It's a lifeblood. <laughs> so if, if I take cash away, as I demonetize, I do reduce criminality, but I also increase poverty. So it's a, it's a complete double-edged sword. Cash is valuable to certain fringes of society who are struggling to make ends meet. Well, so you, um, you, you would do that if the same if the same methods of payment weren't to change between now. So if you just took it away now, yes, completely agree. But then if you think about, again, how methods of payment might evolve to this point and to a wider point, um, again, would it be the same? A lot. There's a lot of ifs and buts. I think that's the point of the but, tweet. But you there's could end up in, a, in, a, in an Orwellian future in which in order to get state aid, you have to get this digital currency and this digital currency spies on everything you do and you're not allowed to spend it. You have no freedom. You must spend it on these things. And you can see how uh, a government like China, which is already encouraging people to report uh, people near them who are in debt to the government. Oh, I saw that. Yeah, um, yeah, might be quite tempted for something like that. So I can see where Ari Paul is coming from, but I would also argue that um, again, Bank of England Working Paper six hundred five. There are different things you can do with crypto assets, other and, and tokenizing fiat money and central bank issued digital currencies. I think Ari Paul is assuming that. Um, all crypto assets would be something that are used by consumers day to day on inside their mobile apps, which actually is where MUFG have started to go in Japan a little bit. But I don't think that in the in the West, at least, that's where the conversation is. The conversation is much more on the institutional level. Yeah, and uh, Ari is always, uh, or it can be provocative, um, but always takes the long view and, and really like what he puts out. 
I, I think you touched on it. Uh, you both did, which is that this is primarily a, a business and a policy question rather than a technology question. You could still be wrestling with these same very important and, and very valid questions decades from now when the technology is totally fundamentally different. And I think we've spoken a lot on on the show today about being known to a bank, being known to someone being KYC'd. And of course, if you're excluded from the banking system, that's essentially a bunch of institutions that are saying they won't go through the work to know you. They won't go through the work to vet you. And and that is is a, a business and policy question rather than a technology question. I think there is a cost question, though, right? So, and and there's also a privacy question. So, in zero knowledge proofs and in Zcash and in Quorum, you have something around confidentiality that is net new that's often left out of the conversation. Uh, it, you have to thread the needle here, but you could imagine a world if we are able to. Uh, do this correctly, in which we have the balance, uh, we can strike a balance between um, reducing state surveillance by default because the underlying systems are so terrible, you need all of the data to even figure out where there's criminality, to a system in which um, you, we transact in confidentiality, not necessarily privacy, but in confidentiality 99.9% .9 of the time, but there are abstract patterns of transactions that are able to be investigated under a warrant. That, I, I imagine, would be acceptable to the overwhelming majority of society, albeit I imagine James and Lop would still find that an overreach. Yeah, and I, I think I think you're right. And um, I mean, look, a quick shill for quarter four, which is, will be released um, uh, in, in the next week or so. Um, and, and that is that we try to put as, as often as possible into the designs the ability to share information only on a transaction by transaction basis. And I think that concept, well, it... it you know, is being implemented in steps um, is exactly what you're talking about. If you can share data only when you want to, only with the counterparties that you want to share data uh, with, and that's that's hugely powerful. But if somebody knows where to get at that, that's not both transacting parties, and um, that in the event of a warrant could go back and investigate that like a regulator, like somebody else. You know, you've got this fundamental problem that post-financial crisis, we had all of the data, we just didn't know what any of it meant. Um, so there's there's that question. Um, and there's the question about, well, does this give us something that we can make sense of? And you've always got that sort of, well, if... Uh, you know, Shout out to Rich Crook. He always talks about, well, that's because bank number one and bank number two had two different copies of the exact same thing that didn't agree with each other. So the regulator becomes like the man with two clocks. He can't tell the time. Right. This atomic settlement and settlement final finality fundamentally starts to solve that problem. And that for the ability to identify what's happening in the economy is, is hugely beneficial. But even like, so I was talking to somebody who's saying that post MIFID 2, banks have started to look at the data that they had to provide to regulators and have gone, oh, I can use this to learn about my clients. Yeah. Oh, I can. So imagine what this would do. I think that's yeah. really exciting. Oh, and inside a network, if you're able to see uh, transaction uh, uh, values and volumes, even if you don't know who the counterparties are or what they're transacting for, um, that would be a, a hugely powerful tool in uh, forming monetary policy. Um, central bankers around the world are, are always looking at the velocity of money um, and, and using that to better target the right interest rate, better target the right um, way to either uh, quantitatively ease or, or restrict the money supply. Um, so I think that's another powerful tool. I think how it's implemented um, from a from a policy level will really um, be 
be what decides whether this is a force for good or not. Let's see. Alrighty, um, that brings us to the end of the show. Just to remind you all, this podcast is, of course, made by us at 11FS, and we are the challenger consultancy that doesn't really like the C word, um, but we're working to shape the next generation of financial services. Adam, do you want to have a go at describing what it is we actually do? Yeah, we should do a uh, like a, a poll on this to see how can we pro- replace yeah, the C what, word with something word else. There's something. Actually, yeah, I think David actually tweeted something about it, like, give us your ideas, but we haven't come up with a decent one. We deliver stuff that's real, but we don't just sit around strategizing it's like how do you take a startup approach to building products and services and say that in one word in one word <laughs> it's hard it's hard um yeah value proposition builders that's like three but we need to get that down to one any ideas send them through to simon's email yeah, simon at 11 fscom <laughs> already um and if you want to hear more blockchain insider every single thursday the subscribe button's right there um look Give us those five-star reviews. They help us out so much. And and tell a friend who uh, might be interested in banking or financial services, what we do. And also, if there's any other industries around that, maybe some of the corporates that would be using this, get in touch and let us know what we should be covering. Alrighty, um, David, where can people find out more about you? Thanks, guys. You can find me at david.nickel at r3.com or on Twitter at nickel right now. Hey, like that. Uh, Adam, how about yourself? Uh, Twitter at AdamD8 and at 11FS in general. Uh, Adam, Adam at 11fs.com. Almost uh, forgot my email address there. By the way, we now have the Twitter handle at 11fs, 11fs. How cool is that? That is All very right. cool. Um, you need to be following that if you're on Twitter. Just saying. A big thank you to our amazing production team here at 11fs, producer Petri and Alex, our editor. Thank you for listening. We'll have more Blockchain Insider next week and every week. Goodbye for now.